We are in the second week of a new series in Genesis. Um, it's called um, God of Promise, and we're looking at Genesis chapter 12 uh, through 50. And today we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 12, and I'm going to read that passage for us right now, and it will be on the screen. It says this, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. I find it to be so interesting how God begins the work of salvation so simply and so locally. Um, just as humanity began with one woman and one man, here, the redemption and the restoration of all things begins with one man and one woman, Abram and Sarai. We saw last week that God spoke to Abram and called Abram to leave Haran to a place that God would show him later. So no clear path, no direction, simply gather up your things and the people with you and go. And the crazy thing is, we saw this last week, he did it. He trusted, he believed, and he did it. He didn't negotiate with the Lord, uh, but instead headed out into the unknown with nothing but faith and a promise. Later, they arrived in Canaan, which if you know anything about the Bible, uh, you might remember is the promised land. But they passed through Canaan, and then they sojourned in the Negev, which is interestingly um, is where the Israelites spent much of their time during their wilderness uh, travels before entering the promised land, which is Canaan. The first thing I want us to see, we only, have, we only have two points today, but the first one is this. It's the power of fear. And as we look at this, I, I want you to consider how powerful a force fear is in the lives of everyone, but maybe how it's affected you in your life. Uh, what has fear done to you? What, what has fear led you to do that you would never do otherwise? Because we're going to see, you've already heard it read, a crazy story about what fear did to a man named Abram. 
God promised Abram that he would be the father of a great nation, and yet they were both older, he and Sarai, and she was barren, but he believed the promise. God promised land for the descendants of Abraham, and in spite of the fact that there were people living in the land, a lot of people, in fact, uh, he believed God, and he believed the promise. Today, though, Abraham faced two brand new obstacles to the promises of God, and he did not believe. Instead of faith, he had fear, and as we will see, this fear caused him to do horrible things. And today, in the beginning of our passage, the the narrator uh, starts the passage by saying, there was a severe famine in the land. And you kind of expect to hear, dun, 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 dun. You know what I mean? You you act like you don't want to know what I mean. Like, it's like, (laughs) it's like, it's like, this is a powerful statement, right? Just like before. Uh, Hey, here's this land, but there were people living in the land. You know, in a place, in a world where, like, so in a world where there's a severe famine in the land. (laughs) Enough of that. So a severe famine would obviously cause any of us uh, to have great fear. Um, And while most of us can't relate to the threat of a severe famine, we came a little close during the COVID times, didn't we? Um, How weird was it to go to the grocery and see shelves that were empty that were once very full. How weird was it to go to Costco and then have to get in this huge queue just to get into Costco and to be talking to the people in line and go like, I hope they have toilet paper today. You know, like, I might get some Charmin. How, how powerful would that be? Like, uh, and just strange things that we thought we'd never see a lack of were now gone. So weird. So seeing those empty shelves, if, I don't know about you, but as kind of a control freak myself, it, it let me go to places in my mind and let fear get a grip a little bit. And I started wondering, like, what happens if the, the supply chain really does fully break down? What happens if we lose the power grid? What happens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And I didn't, like, you know, start hoarding food or uh, getting a generator or anything, but my, my mind started going places places of fear. So a severe famine hits, and the text tells us that Abram went to Egypt. And to sojourn, it says, he sojourned in Egypt means a temporary stay. It's, it's longer than a vacation, but you don't fully unpack either. And usually there's a reason for sojourning, and it's usually because of a great crisis, like a famine. And so I want you to think refugee, because that's, that's kind of what's going on here. They go to Egypt, and ancient Egypt was impressive. If you've studied it at all, you do realize, like we think of ancient peoples as being totally uncivilized, not very smart, and and just not having it together. But as you study ancient Egypt, we're astounded by the feats of engineering and their technology and the way they did things. And so Egypt was wealthy, advanced, and impressive. If If you go to New York City, go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and see the exhibit on Egypt, it is astounding. So a severe famine hits, and they go to Egypt. And in the Bible, for good reason, as you know the story of the Old Testament, going to Egypt is not simply saying, yeah, I'm going to go to Egypt, which is a literal place. It's a metaphor for not trusting God. 
going to Egypt means I will be taking matters into my own hands. I will be trusting my own resources or the resources of this world and not the living God. For example, it says in Isaiah 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, both literally and metaphorically. And so Abram was fearful and he's seeking to control the the situation. I, I would totally do that. And he loads up the caravan and they go to Egypt. And the first tangible threat was famine and we can definitely understand that, that makes sense to us. The second tangible threat that he was facing uh, is less obvious and a little weird if, if, if from our perspective. Because the next threat was this. Uh, he had a beautiful, beautiful wife. And that presented a huge problem. It was the threat of traveling in the ancient Near East with a beautiful woman, especially if she was your wife. And so we see in the narrative that although Sarai is 65 years old, she is still so beautiful that Abram intuits this potential problem that, this, as, and interestingly, as the story unfolds, we see he wasn't crazy, right? Because this is what happens. And so he thought, if I tell the Egyptian that she is my wife, uh, they will kill me to get to her. But if I say she's my sister, then I can barter for her. I can literally sell her uh, to the Egyptians, and I will be fine, and I'll just trust God for her life. <laughs> so spiritual. And I want you to think about this for just a second. Like, now, it may have been a long time later when this goes down, but from the narrative itself, as we're reading this story, it just seems like yesterday that God is speaking to Abram, that he hears the voice of God, he hears the promises of God, he hears the call of God, and he's believing. And only moments later in the written story, it seems, and I'm sure, once again, much longer time has taken place, he has no faith in this moment. He says, like, all right, we're going to go down to Egypt, and uh, they're going to have food. Phew, good, good. But uh, my wife is beautiful, so they're going to kill me and take her as their wife. And so since Sarai is my half-sister, ew, (laughs) can we admit that's disgusting, right? Okay, and I want to stop and talk about this for just a second. Uh, In Genesis chapter 20, we learn that Sarai is Abram's half-sister. Now, it's icky, but again, I want you to to notice, we've said this many times, Scripture is often um, not endorsing, but reporting things. It's not prescribing things, but describing things. And that's exactly what's going on here. In fact, we believe that Moses is the narrator between for the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, etc. So we believe that Moses wrote Genesis, but he also wrote Leviticus, where marrying your sister was, uh, a, there is a law against marrying your sister. And so uh, I think, actually, in spite of how gross this is, this should give you confidence that the scripture is trustworthy. What do I mean? Why, why would Moses include this? He's heard it in the oral traditions. Why would he write this down if it made the father of our faith look so bad and was against their own morals and mores? It was even written in Leviticus uh, that you should not do this. So why, why would you do it? 
because it was the truth. And so, back to the story, he says, I will tell the Egyptians this half-truth. She is my sister after all. I won't tell them the full truth, that we're also married, and I won't be killed. Sarai is so beautiful. We see that the word gets around. The princes of Egypt are talking about her beauty. It gets back to Pharaoh, and he brings her into his home. Look what fear can do. Look what fear can do. Look to the places where fear can take you. Look at how giving in to fear hurts so many people. It hurt Abram. It really hurt Sarai. And it even hurt the people of Egypt. Plagues were sent upon these people. And they were innocent, in a sense. And one of the most powerful forms of fear that we deal with, and the Bible recognizes and talks, talks about it a lot, is the, what the Bible calls the fear of man, the fear of other people, the fear of what people think about you, right? The fear of reputa- losing reputation. Uh, and right connected with the fear of rejection and the fear of, of what people think of us is the fear of failure. What will people think about me if I fail? What, what if, will people think of me if I'm just average or worse, that I am an utter failure in life? We often, interestingly, I think, only assume that certain kind of people have these kind of insecurities and wrestle with that. Like, I, I, I totally believed that when I was a younger pastor, like right out of seminary. I assumed only certain groups of people like really wrestle with insecurity and fear of failure and fear of what other people thought of them. I, I assumed that the most fit person I knew would not wrestle with that, or the most handsome uh, man I knew would not have those kind of insecurities, or the most beautiful woman I maybe have met would not believe those things about herself, or the wealthiest person I knew, or the most educated person. You, you see where I'm going. And so... What happened as a young pastor, I began to hear people's stories, and it didn't align with what the rest of the world was thinking about this person. A a, a very successful person, someone with a great pedigree and education and background, is wrestling with a fear of failure and a profound insecurity. And it doesn't make sense because they've climbed the ladder. They've made it. They're a success. Uh, the most fit person, the best person, the person you know that is in the, the best shape, and, and then and they're talking about this profound fear that they have of what other people think about them, or the most beautiful woman, or the most wealthy person. What I've found is this. These kind of fears affect everyone. Young, old, poor, impoverished, wealthy, educated, uneducated, White collar, blue collar, it doesn't matter. We're all wrestling with what people think about us. And if we're not careful, that fear can get so big and so twisted, it can keep you from doing things and it can cause you to do other things. There are things that you should do in life that you won't do because of fear, and there's things that you should not do in life that you will do because of fear. Ironically, we often fear things we shouldn't, and we don't fear things that we should. There are things we should be afraid of. We should fear the consequences of sin, and we often don't. We should fear how our actions could hurt other people, 
and, and we often don't. We should fear Taco Bell Doritos Gordita Crunch. <laughs> and I often don't. I've got I have two or three other stories I was going to tell you, and they take too long, so I'm not going to do it. But just when we were raising our three boys, there were so many things they should have been afraid of that they were not. And thank God their, their brains are more fully formed now that they're in their mid-20s and young 20s. It's like, you know... If, no fear of heights. No fear of jumping off a roof into a pool over a huge gap with concrete in between. No fear of like all these things. Would just be, I would just be constantly saying, you're going to die if you're not careful, please. Our problem is that much of our fear is focused on things we should not fear because of the power of God's faithfulness. And we often become fearful when someone or something is threatening something we're looking to for security. Let me say that again. We often become fearful when someone or something is threatening someone or something we're looking to for security, something we trust, something we think we need more than God himself. And we all do this, every single one of us. And in a sense, this may be where the human heart resides most clearly. This is what we do. Fears like that are a sign that something in life is becoming way too big for us. And and usually, if you think about it, it's not a bad thing. It's often a great thing, a good thing that God has given us that we have elevated to an ultimate thing. And of, of course, what I'm talking about is heart idolatry. When we take a ordinary thing, a good gift from God, but we elevate it to an ultimate thing, it becomes disordered. It's not in order. It's not in the right place in life. And if we put that kind of pressure, if, for example, you say, my spouse has to fulfill me in the deepest part of my heart and my life, you'll be crushed by life. Because the reality is your spouse can't complete you, no matter what Jerry Maguire told us. That's just not true the love of another human being can't be your full and final thing that fills you. It just won't work. It'll be too much pressure on your spouse. And what happens if you lose that love? We should invest in our retirement. Looking around the room, there's a ton of you that are pretty young here today. Like, listen, invest in your future now. You're like, I don't have enough money. You don't have you, you, you do it now. The, the power of compound interest is unbelievable, even in a market like ours right now. If you're in your 20s, now is the time. Start saving money for your future. Do it, but don't put your full and final security in it. You'll die a million deaths as the market goes up and down. Invest, walk away, and trust God. We should love people. And part of loving other people is caring about what they think about us. At some level, it'd be very unhealthy to say, I literally don't care at all what people think of me. Now, that'd be a really strange emotion, a very unhealthy emotion. But it's also very unhealthy to look to others and say, if I don't have your validation, then I have no meaning in life. That I need you to speak a word of blessing into my life or I have nothing. When we let the power of man, uh, the, the fear of man, or the fear of other people grow so much, it will, it will crush us. It says in our confession today, uh, we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. That's what's 
true of you, and yet so many of us are walking around feeling condemned. So many of us have carried shame throughout our life, feeling a a low-grade fever of condemnation because for some reason, we didn't live up to somebody's approval in our life. We didn't didn't, uh, make our parents' approval. We didn't meet or match what they expected or our own approval. And, And meanwhile, the king of the universe, the one that conquered life and death, is standing in heaven and declaring over you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're forgiven fully and finally. And not only are you forgiven, the gospel tells us that in him we are accepted. Not only forgiven, but declared the daughters of God, declared the sons of the high king who will inherit all things with him. Back to the story. The famine came, he got scared, and the fear of life became the lens through which he saw everything, and it made him do horrible things. The next point I want us to see is the greater power of promise, but the reality is we're just going to keep unpacking this narrative. There's a pattern that Abraham followed, and it was positive at first, but it was negative later. It was this. God gave him a promise, and then there's a problem that comes right after. Every time there's a promise there's usually an obstacle to that promise, right? In the case of of this story, there's all these obstacles in the way of the promise. In our situation, it's not too different. Uh, The promises of God, the ultimate promise, is that in the end, God is going to redeem and restore everything that is broken and wrong and and messed up and, and sinful in this world. Everything that is bad in this world will be undone and made new. Are there any obstacles to that that would seem like that are in the way of that? Anything that seems like is in the way of that happening? How about everything in the world? (laughs) Every single thing happening in the world right now seems like an obstacle to that. just doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. So promise, problem, and then worship. So God gives him a problem, or a, a promise. There are all these obstacles to the promise, but instead he believes, and then he's led to worship. He makes altars to the living God, sacrifices, and he worships God. But then when things go bad, uh, there's a promise. He fails to believe the promise, and he still worships, but now he's worshiping idols. And idols will crush us and kill us. And we do the same thing. So I want to ask you two questions. One, what is your greatest problem right now? What is it? What is your greatest obstacle in life? God has made all these promises to you through the gospel. You are his son. You are his daughter. Uh, He is for you. He is with you. He delights in you. He has saved you. He has cleansed you. He's declared no condemnation over you. He's accepted you. He promises to return to bring him with you. He's promising new heavens and new earth with you there. So there's the promise But you're living a life that's difficult, most likely, and you have a problem. What is it? Can you name it? The next question I have is, what is your Egypt? What is the thing you're looking to, other than the living God, to be your ultimate? What is the thing in your life that you say, I have to have this right now, or life will not have meaning or value or purpose? When problems come, we either 
trust and worship the living God or we are bowing at the altar of idols. Again, I want us to slow down and I want us to look at what fear made Abram do. And we're going to have to stare it in the face and it's pretty ugly. The more you unpack this, it's very, very ugly. Look at what fear made Abram do. Because of fear, he trafficked his wife into Pharaoh's harem. Not by accident, not like, whoops, they took my wife. Oh, no. This was his plan. (laughs) He concocted this plan. He receives servants and livestock. He gets really wealthy. He literally sells her or traffics her into, into this harem. And later we find out that uh, he calls her his wife, Pharaoh does, like, I've made her my wife, but trust me, she's not the only wife. This is a large group of wives. This is a harem. He receives servants and livestock and, and gets really, really wealthy. His wife, his dear bride, is trafficked and is imperiled. Is be, this is so wrong. God promised Abram that he would be the father of a great nation and that the promise would be through Sarai's womb. And yet we see time and again their struggle to wait for God to fulfill that promise and they keep wrestling it into their own hands and making horrible decisions. Sarai is his wife, his bride, the future mother of the promise that God has made of, of descendants, and he hands her over to, the men of the, to these men to be used for the fulfillment of their lusts. This is disgusting. In doing so, he not only exposed her to great abuse, but he also repudiated God's promise to him. And in the end, we read that God rescued them In spite of the idiocy on Abram's part, God afflicted Pharaoh with plagues, another theme that's repeated in the Old Testament, of course. But unlike the Pharaoh of Exodus, this one relents and says to Abram, why did you do this to me, you weirdo? Who would do this? Now, some people don't know what to do with this text, and they try to spiritualize it and reinterpret it. In fact, one of my heroes of the faith did just that, St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of all time and a man for whom we should be so thankful. And yet, in interpreting this story, he was so uncomfortable with the plain facts that Abram, the ancient father through whom God started the entire process of the redemption and restoration of all things, was a man of great faith, Abram was, but he was also a scoundrel and a horrible sinner. Augustine wrote in his book, The City of God, Abram did not deny that she was his wife, but he held his peace about it, committing, God, committing to God the defense of his wife's chastity. That's a cop-out. Imagine in a court of law, you said like, yeah, I just knew that God would uh, take care of my wife and not give her over to this abuse. I'm, entrusting, I'm, going to, I'm going to entrust to God my wife's safety. No, God put you in a place as her husband to love her and to lay down your life for her, not to imperil hers for your own sake. 
Augustine couldn't stomach that God would use a sinner like Abram to begin his work of reconciliation in the world. And so he chose to see faith in Abram where there was fear and sin. And the reality is this. The gospel of grace is so magnanimous, and the problem of the human heart is so big, it's hard to reconcile at times. When you really dive deep into the human condition and then the breadth and the depth of God's forgiveness and love, it's hard to stomach. It's hard to believe. Humanity's problem is not simply that we've broken a few rules here and there. And we see this in Abram. It goes much deeper than that. It affects what we love. It affects our motivations. It affects what we long for, what we desire. We don't simply sin from time to time. We are filled with hearts that love sin and do not love God's law. But in spite of how bad the bad news is, look at the good news. God saves sinners like Abram and uses him in powerful ways. And I don't know about you, but that tells me something awesome. There's hope for people like me and you. If God can use somebody like this that does something so horrible and affect such beautiful redemption through the world, through this man, he can use the likes of you and me. And ultimately, what I want us to see today is this, that while Abram was the beginning of this story of redemption, and he was, he is not the fulfillment of the story. He is the beginning, the very beginning. He is the seed that is planted, a seed by faith that is pointing ultimately to what God would victoriously do through the Son, Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament is pointing us forward in types and shadow and story, saying there is one coming who is greater than this one. And so while Abram was the beginning of the story of redemption, it was all leading us to Jesus and the fulfillment of it. While Abram gave in to fear, Jesus never wavered from the promises of God. While Abram sacrificed his bride's safety and chastity in order that he may be spared and enriched, Jesus left the riches of heaven and sacrificed his very life so that his bride may be spared and may be made holy. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word so that he may present the church to himself in splendor so that she may be holy and without blemish. Let's pray. Father, give us grateful hearts for how good Jesus is and how desperate we are for him and his work and, and, and the hope that he provides. Father, thank you that in spite of the fact that we, like Abram, are constantly giving into fear over faith, that we're failing to believe your promises time and again, that we go to Egypt every day looking to other things for our sense of security, we go to food and drink and money and sex and power and reputation, all these things, to have a sense of security. And none of it's working, Lord. And we, we get bound up in fear and we do foolish things, Lord, and it just leads us into paths of destruction. But would you, 
not only forgive us, but walk with us that we may be wise and may enjoy what it means to be your children. We pray this in the blessed name of your son. Amen.